How many of you have read a, just an amazing work of fiction that was just one of those books that's like, man, I just feel like I just can't put this down. It just the uh, story as it's unfolded page after page, there's a masterful storyteller skillfully weaving together a tapestry of words that just paints this vivid picture within your mind and it just simply comes alive as you're reading through the pages. It really is amazing what a good book can do to just fuel our imaginations and it can leave a lasting impression upon us. And a lot of times it is the great works of fiction that are that stir our imaginations and then are eventually turned into movies. Uh, the movies, right? <laughs> We've been reading the Chronicles of Narnia as a family in the evenings, just reading them out loud and just kind of moving through. And we read Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and then Prince Caspian and Voyage of the Don Treader, and now we're on to The Silver Chair. Well, as we've been moving through that series, we've also been watching some of the films. After we finished with the book, we watch some of the movies that have been produced. And each time we watch, it's like, okay, with every movie, it seems like they drift further and further away from faithfulness to the original book. And that was the most apparent with The Voyage of the Don Treader. You know, C.S. Lewis, as he was writing that book, there's, if, if you're paying attention, if you, and if you know the Christian themes that are being expanded through the book, it's very clear the, the intentional allegory that was in place with C.S. Lewis as he's writing this book and he's telling this story. And then you, re, then you watch the movie, and it seems that a lot of the symbolism and a lot of the intent with what Lewis was attempting to accomplish through the book is either lost or it is brought into the movie in a way that, that doesn't communicate things with the same depth. And so you lose out on some of the intent with what was trying to be communicated within that book. There are some times where there are creative liberties that are taken that they can be positive additions and positive adjustments, but most of the time they are not good, right? These creative liberties end up changing the story in some way or bringing things down. Well, the concept of creative liberties, they, they can be a good thing, they can be a bad thing. In our text today, we have individuals that are taking creative liberties with the law of God itself. And as they do so, it is not a positive thing within our text. Here we have the Pharisees, the Pharisees, these individuals, they are the most holy, the most righteous, the, the most upright of all the Jews. You know, there's a, a joke that has been going on in uh, recent times about, you know, how, how is it if you meet somebody on the street and they happen to be Tesla owners, how will you know if they're a Tesla owner? They'll tell you, right? They want you to know, oh yes, I drive a Tesla. Well, if you come across a Pharisee, how will you know they're a Pharisee? Well, they'll let you know, right? They'll communicate in some way. They want you to know. They'll come right out and inform you because they want you to know that these are holy individuals. They know the law of God. They are the most studied of all the scribes. They'll let you know. Well, not only were the Pharisees some of the most the most well-learned scholars in the law. They wanted you to know that, but there is irony in this. 
Because the Pharisees, even though they are the most learned in the law of God, they are also most prone to mix the traditions of men. And so you could say they take creative liberties with the law of God and not the good kind of creative liberties. In our text today, we're going to find the ugliness of legalism. Ugliness of legalism. Now, legalism is a term that we would do well to define. Legalism is often thrown around in ways that are less than helpful. In fact, there are many who would throw around that kind of terminology just against anything that they just don't like. There's a pastor whose name was Leonard Ravenhill, well-known Christian author and evangelist. He once wrote this. When there is something in the Bible that churches don't like, they just call it legalism. So, legitimate calls to obedience to Christ can thus easily be called into question or to be attacked with that pejorative label, oh, you're just being legalistic. It's like, no, we're just trying to be faithful to what the commands of Scripture actually command us to do. So this is an error that we would do well to avoid. We must not call legalism what God has clearly prescribed for His church to obey. By the same token, there are legitimate forms of legalism out there that we must be willing to face and address. So I want to provide for us two related definitions for legalism this morning. Two forms that legalism can take. One form of legalism would be the kind that's, if we were open up the book of Galatians, we would say the Galatian church struggled with this form of legalism. They were looking to Old Testament law-keeping in order to earn or merit salvation or favor from God. This approach is a self-righteousness approach to living life, one that looks to what may very well be legitimate commands of God, but it's looking to my faithfulness to those commands as the basis of my salvation or the basis of my standing before God. So I look at these commands and say, yes, by keeping this, I shall earn my salvation as a form of legalism because it does not look to the finished work of Christ upon the cross, but it looks to my own efforts in keeping the law of God. For the Galatians, this has been called a Jesus plus mentality. Jesus plus the Old Testament law. Jesus plus my own good works and efforts. So Jesus plus is an error denounced by Paul. And truthfully, if we're to think about this concept of of, of us earning our salvation or earning our favor with God, it's really an insult to the gospel of Christ and offends every member of the Trinity. It insults the holiness of the Father by suggesting that God's holiness could be attainable by our own efforts. It insults the cross of Christ because it implies that either the cross is unnecessary or insufficient. And it insults the regenerating and empowering work of the Spirit because it implies that we can do it ourselves and we don't need the Spirit's empowerment. We, can, we got this. It's a form of legalism. second form of legalism is the kind that we're going to see in our text today. This is the kind the Pharisees dealt with. 
This is the kind of legalism that creates additional rules not found in Scripture, but then giving them the same weight as Scripture itself, or forcing those rules upon others and saying, hey, if you don't follow these rules, then you're not a true follower of Christ. Scripture says X, well, it would really be better if we also didn't do Y, and if you do, you're on the same level as someone who has violated command X. Why is this an issue? Why, what, what's so bad about that, right? It's, it's good to have barriers, right? If, if, there's a, if there's a ditch that we don't want to fall into, it's not enough just to stay away from the ditch, but maybe we should put up some extra fences, right? That'll keep us from getting into the ditch. Why is that a bad thing? Well, we're going to see what Jesus has to say about that in our text today. And um, I don't have the ability to control this today. I don't know why, what's going on with the app, but you're going to have to advance it as we go along. Oh, no, now, I, it, now it's letting me control it. The Pharisees took some creative liberties with the law. The law of God was specific. God laid forth His commands, and the Pharisees tampered with it and added additional rules on top of it. Well, what's, what's wrong with that? Why, are, why is this a big deal? What are the errors of this form of legalism? Well, the first is this. Legalism creates expectations of outward conformity while ignoring the heart. It creates expectations of outward conformity while ignoring the heart. Let's pick up our text in Mark chapter 7 beginning with verse 1. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the disciples and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash and there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Verse 1 says the Pharisees gathered to him, having come down from Jerusalem. This is our first interaction with the Pharisees for several chapters. Last time we saw them was way back into chapter 3 when Jesus was challenging them on the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, where the Pharisees were saying that Jesus was casting out demons by the power of demons, by the power of Beelzebul. That episode was the culmination of a series of interactions and confrontations with Jesus and the religious leaders where they were in opposition against Jesus and it, was this, it came to this massive, this, this boiling point where they were directly attributing Jesus' works to the evil one. Well, we had several chapters that were free from any interactions with the Pharisees, but now here Mark reintroduces the Pharisees and the confrontations are going to begin again. And this is going to get, begin to escalate through the next several chapters as Jesus moves towards Jerusalem. 
But the text says that, the, that they saw the disciples eating with unwashed hands and they took offense to this. It's interesting here that the ESV does not translate the, uh, the Greek word for bread in this passage. So if we look at verse 2 here, it says that they saw that some of the disciples ate with hands that were defiled. And if you were to open up different translations, as we were talking about in our Sunday school class of the last several weeks, about comparing the different translations, so this is one area where we would see a difference. There are some translations that say they, they ate food with, uh, with hands that were defiled. If you had the NASB or the CSB or several other translations, we would see the word bread. They ate bread with defiled hands or unwashed hands. It's possible that that's just a generic statement for food in general and a generic statement for just eating in general. But, but remember that this follows right on the heels of the miracle of Jesus feeding the 5,000. So I cannot help but wonder if there's a connection to that miracle here where the Pharisees saw this amazing miracle of Jesus breaking the bread and distributing out this bread, just five loaves of bread and two fish becoming enough to feed 5,000 plus individuals because remember it was 5,000 men that didn't count all the women and children that were sure to be present as well. Thousands upon thousands of individuals and here the Pharisees are not being amazed at this power but are taking offense that they're eating with unwashed hands. Oh, the gall! How dare they? That is the complaint that they have. Why? Why is this an issue? Well, Mark helpfully gives us some background information here. Verses 3 and 4, this is their tradition. This is what they do. This is the tradition of the elders. Right? This, is, this is something that has been passed down for generations that this is how we do things. We always wash our hands prior to a meal, and this is not for hygienic reasons, right? Like today, we think of this, okay, everyone, it's good to wash our hands before we eat meals, right? That's a good practice to do just because it's hygienic. We, we don't want to be bringing germs and things into the food that we're eating. But that is not the reason why these individuals, these Pharisees, wash their hands. No, they do it for ritualistic reasons, Notice that it says that they were eating with defiled hands. It says that back in verse 2, and it says it again down in verse 5. Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? There's a defilement idea present here. It's important for us to remember that there is, there is no Old Testament command for all Jews to wash hands before eating a meal. That command isn't there. There is a command for priests before performing their priestly duties. They would have to go through a ritual cleansing process and that included a special process for washing their hands. But there is no command for all of Israel as a whole to go through a ritualistic washing process prior to eating. This was a command that had developed over time that had been added to the law and became part of the tradition of the elders. And so they view it as being ritually unclean to eat with these defiled or these unwashed hands. And so that's why that, that's their complaint. They use that word for defiled. 
And notice that they themselves, they, they don't po- point to Scripture and say, hey, you know, they're, they're disobeying Moses here. Right? They're, they're not following. There's, you, Jesus, there's that passage in Leviticus, and it says we've got to do things this way. Like, no, they don't cite that. They cite the tradition of the elders. Jesus has rebuked to this. These individuals, these Pharisees, says that this is how we've come to do things. This is the tradition of the elders. And so therefore, we are all obligated to observe this practice. This is the standard. Notice Jesus' reply. Verse 6, he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. That word well might better be translated as correctly or rightly did Isaiah prophesy as the NASB puts it. Jesus says, no, Isaiah got this one right. Of course, Isaiah got it all right, but Jesus is emphasizing this point right here. Yep, Isaiah was spot on right here. He calls them hypocrites. Now, that word for hypocrites uh, has an interesting history. Originally, that word was used of, of play actors who would be up on a stage, and they'd be playing a part, and they would have these masks and that they would have. Oftentimes, you'd have one individual that would play multiple characters within the play, so they may have multiple masks at different points that they would put on and put off and change depending upon what character they're playing in the moments. Well, that word eventually began, began to be used as a pejorative against those who would purport to be one thing but were really something else. So there's the play actors on the stage, they're putting on the mask, they're pretending to be one thing, but really there's something else altogether. And so that's how the word hypocrite began to be developed into our modern understanding of the word hypocrisy and hypocrite. It says, no, 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 you're, you're saying one thing, but you're doing something else. In this case, the Pharisees claim to be religious and holy by all their extra-biblical commands, but in reality, they're not concerned about holiness at all. And so this passage from Isaiah is a stinging indictment upon the Pharisees. In the context of Isaiah, if we were to go back there, this is from Isaiah chapter, oh, I believe it was 29, uh, Isaiah, back in Isaiah, the prophet was dealing with a people that were at times observing religious practices. In fact, if we were going to go open up Isaiah chapter 1, we would see that they were observing festivals, they were observing sacrifices, they were doing a lot of these ritualistic things that's just like, okay, that's good, they're worshiping the Lord, that's great. And God says, no, I hate your sacrifices, I hate your festivals, I hate your Sabbath observances. Why? Because the people were not wholly devoted to the Lord. On the one hand, they were worshiping the one true God by having these sacrifices and observing their festivals and doing their Sabbath day observances. And they were doing all the religious things. But on the other hand, they were also engaging in worship of false idols. They were engaged in evil. They were participating in sexual immorality. They were doing all these other evil things. And so God says, I don't want your sacrifices when you're living like that. So when Jesus applies this passage to the Pharisees, when he says, yep, well, correctly, rightly did Isaiah prophesy about you, 
These people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Claiming to worship the Lord, they're, they're, they're putting on a great show of it, but their hearts are not there. Teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Jesus says, you're just like them. This passage is just as much about you as it was about the people in Israel back when Isaiah was prophesying. Jesus' strong rebuke against them revealed that they were concerned about getting everyone to conform to the outward expectations of the rules that they had set in place and completely forgetting about the heart issues at play. Where is your heart? Where's repentance? What about sorrow for sin? What about love for God and love for neighbor? Where does all that fit into the play, Pharisees? They're missing so much about what God desired from His Word. So this is part of the ugliness of legalism. It creates rules and then raises them up to the level of Scripture and then condemns everyone who doesn't live up to that artificial standard. It creates outward expectations for outward conformity while ignoring the heart. Well, Jesus isn't done. In fact, He's just getting warmed up. He's just getting started. Legalism doesn't just create rules, but there's a, a hyperfixation on the rules themselves, turns the Pharisees into these almost rules lawyers of sorts, so they can know all what all the workarounds are. Because legalism doesn't just create more rules, but it also creates legal loopholes while ignoring the intent of God's law. Let's pick it back up in verse 9. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed it down. And many such things you do. Jesus' words are very pointed here. He says, you have a fine way of rejecting God's commands in favor of your own rules. Ouch, you can just kind of hear the, the stinging rebuke within those words itself. You're pretty good at that, aren't you? You're pretty good at rejecting God's intent. Jesus goes on to explain what he means. God gave you a clear command. Here's an, here's an explicit example of what you do. God gives you a clear command. He says, honor your father and your mother. That's your responsibility. Now, we need to put this into terms of back, you know, get ourselves back into the first century here where 
you know, very different culture, very different context. In that context, it was very common for families to live together, where there would be like a, a communal house, or there'd be several uh, branches of the family that would be living on the same property in the same place. Well, there were times where perhaps there'd be, you know, maybe you would build a house over here for yourselves, or however that would work out, but as your parents would age, then they would welcome the parents back into their homes and care for them and such as they, as they age because they can't care for themselves as well any longer. And so these are the things that would be going on. It was expected that children would provide for their parents in their old age. The Pharisees, again, they're those rules lawyers. They have figured out all the tricks, all the loopholes. Says, oh, you want to get out of your obligation to your parents? You want to hold on to some of your property? You don't want to give that up for the sake of caring for your parents? Well, we have just the solution for you. All you got to do is tell your parents that whatever it was that you would have given them, oh, you know, mom, dad, I would have totally given you this. I would totally would have provided for you in this way, but I forgot. It's Corbin. Sorry, I can't. I've dedicated it to the Lord. Approaching things this way would accomplish multiple things for this individual. One, it on the surface at least, makes you look spiritual. I've dedicated this property to the Lord. Look how generous I am to the Lord. Do it, and it also kind of insulates you from criticism because, hey, who's going to tell you, hey, you really shouldn't have dedicated that to the Lord? Who's going to say that? No one's going to say that, right? Third, and most importantly, it means that you get to hold on to your own property and you get to enjoy it longer and the fruits of it longer because your vow of dedication would need not be fulfilled until after you die. That's how that worked in that system. When you say, oh, it's Corbin, I'm dedicating this to the Lord. Well, you have the property. Well, it's when you die, that's when that goes unto the Lord. It doesn't go right away. And so you get to hold on to your property. You get to enjoy the benefits of that while at the same time, denying uh, the culpability and at the same time looking spiritual in the process. Notice what else Jesus says here. If a man tells his father and mother, whatever you have gained from me is Corbin, that is given to God, then in verse 12 he says, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother. Some people have understood this in different ways, but it seems to be that maybe you change your mind later on, or maybe you, you do want to at least give a show that, oh, you know, I, actually, I, I want to take that back, and I want to give this to my parents after all. The Pharisees would come along and say, no, 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 you can't do that. We don't permit that. You have dedicated this to God. You've, you've dedicated it as Corbin. Therefore, that's the end of it. You don't get to go back on that. So it gives you almost a cover for the gift of sorts that even if you wanted to change your mind, the Pharisees step in and say, nope, it's too late, it's done. Well, God has clearly said what he expects from the people and the Pharisees blow all that up with their legal loopholes. Completely ignores the intent and design of God's law in favor of rigid adherence to the tradition that they have added on top of the Scriptures. And then Jesus says, that's just one example. Verse 13, in many such things you do. You do this all over the place. It's not just here, but it's everywhere. 
And so if we were to look in the Old Testament where the Scripture says, oh, on the Sabbath day you're not to do any work, well, the Pharisees would come along and they'd say, well, to lift a bale of hay, that is work. You're not allowed to do that. But if you place your spoon on top of the bale of hay and then lift up the bale of hay, you're not actually designing to lift the bale of hay. You're trying to move the spoon and the spoon's not too big for work. So you can go ahead and move the bale of hay then because you're not moving the bale of hay, you're moving the spoon. Well, it's comical, right? It's silly, it's ridiculous, but that's the kind of things that the Pharisees would do. They had all these legal loopholes to get around the the letter of the law, completely ignoring the spirit and intent of what God had designed the law to accomplish. There are different ways that this can come into our own lives. We can try to justify our own sin. Well, you know, I know, God, you say I shouldn't do this or I should do that, but, you know, X, Y, Z. You know, I I think this other thing is, is worth pursuing right now or whatever it is that we might use to justify things within our own minds. We can even try to convince ourselves that no, no, I, I, this, this, I know you said this isn't right, Lord, but it's actually good because my motivations are good. Doing the wrong thing for what you might think are the right reasons is still the wrong thing, right? Seeking to skirt the intent of God's commands to justify our actions is clearly at odds with the intent of God's commands for us, and it just completely ignores the goodness of God's law and the goodness of what God has commanded for His people. Legalism creates legal loopholes while ignoring the intent of God's law. Well, Jesus is then going to call the crowd together. He addresses the Pharisees directly, and then He's going to say, all right, everyone, listen up. I got something to say here. Bring it in. Let's go. Because legalism... Jesus is going to go on to explain it creates an emphasis on outward actions while ignoring the inward attitudes. Verse 14, and he called the people to him again and said to them, hear me all of you and understand, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not into his heart but into his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of a man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Pharisees were hyper-concerned with outward actions and place such a high emphasis on things like ritual cleanliness and avoiding anything defiling. Because of course, you have to remain ritually clean, right? You, you have to do this. This is something that you must do. But the net result what they, is that they ignored the heart. What are your heart motivations? What's driving you? 
what comes forth out of you? Pharisees were concerned only about eating the clean animals versus the unclean according to the law of Moses. And that's living in that time, living under the law according to that first covenant. That's all well and good, but if you eat nothing but only clean animals your whole life, but, they, but you still harbor hatred within your heart, or, or you're living in sexual immorality, are you actually clean or are you defiled? Well, Jesus says that's when you're actually defiled. Because the sinfulness that flows out of your own heart is what defiles you. It is your heart that is the key thing here. Now, there's been a lot of debate about the meaning of the phrase found in verse 19 where it says, Thus Jesus declared all foods clean. It seems that this is a parenthetical remark, and in the ESV, that's how it's brought in. There's a parenthesis there. It's, it, it goes from I've got a red letter edition. It goes from red letters to apprentices in black text and then back to red letters once again. Well, Mark is seeking us to help us understand some things here. Later in the book of Acts, we're going to see that God is going to give Peter a vision and it seems that all dietary restrictions are, are lifted. They're not to be enforced upon the church. They're part of the first covenant. They're not part of the new covenant. Well, here Jesus' words, words seem to indicate that it is now morally permissible to eat things. It would have been traditionally the unclean food because, and this is the key point here, the law wasn't just about food for the sake of food. It never was. Food doesn't morally defile a person. All the aspects of the law, all the things that the law commanded was, was designed to communicate something and teach us something about ourselves. And it all gets back to issues of the heart. Out of the heart of man come all these evil things, Jesus says. All these evil thoughts of sexual immorality, theft, murder, and so forth. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Jesus says the Pharisees, they're so concerned about the external actions that they're missing the real issues. They're missing the hearts. And that's what we've got to deal with. That's what we've got to reckon with. Because if we ignore the issues of the heart, we've missed the whole point of the law in the first place. You know, we live in a culture right now that tries to tell us that, that mankind is, is basically good. Follow your heart, right? All these things, all these nice platitudes that sound nice. There are schools of, of, of psychology that, that are built upon the assumption that, that we only end up doing bad things. It's not because we're bad people, but it's because of the environment in which we were raised and we were culturally conditioned towards this behavior, we weren't nurtured properly. If we could just get kids into the right environment, if we could just create the, create the perfect setting, then everything will turn out right. Does our environment have an effect upon us in the choices that we make? Yes, it does. But is it the end-all and be-all? No. 
we are not entirely driven by simply a function of our environment and a function of how we were raised. This approach completely ignores the fundamental issue, and that is the issue that Jesus is getting at within this text. It's the issue of the heart. Our hearts are rotten. All right, we do evil things not because we just have bad influences, but because our hearts are evil as sinners. We aren't morally defiled because of external forces acting against us. We're morally defiled because of our heart attitudes, motivations, and desires are contrary to what God says is good and right. And so just creating a list of rules and legal loopholes, it does absolutely nothing to address the heart. And nothing to rectify the issue. Check out Colossians chapter 2, verses 20 through 23. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you are still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These things refer to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teaching. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. In the context of Colossians, there's, there's a mixture of things going on there where they're, they're, the Colossian church was seeking to incorporate some of the Jewish practices back into their Christian lives, and Paul is asking them, Why? Why are you trying to bring yourself back into these things of the law? It doesn't make sense. It may have an appearance of wisdom, but it does, it's of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. It doesn't actually help. This is at the heart of Jesus' condemnation of the Pharisees and their teaching. They're promising you holiness. They're promising that if you just keep these rules, then you'll be all right. Then you'll be acceptable before God. But the promises are empty. They cannot be delivered. It's an empty promise that cannot be delivered upon. Because it's of no value. It doesn't address the heart. Not long ago, I was listening to a sermon by another pastor that I know as he was preaching from 2 Corinthians, and in that sermon, he said this about legalism. Legalism markets itself as a way to be separate from the world, but in the end, it's just more worldliness. It's just more worldliness. By adding things to God's Word or by creating legal loopholes to try to excuse sin or, or by focusing all your energy on external things while ignoring the root issues, we trick ourselves into thinking that we are being more holy, but at the end of the day, it's just more worldliness because we're only heaping up to ourselves pride and self-righteousness. And pride and self-righteousness is as worldly as it gets. This approach to living life, this is what the world does. I mean, this is all the false religions of the world. This is what it is. Seeking to earn our way, seeking to try to be good of our own merits and our own ability, and adding rules upon rules that if you just follow those, you'll be all right, but it ignores the root issues. 
As we just think about a few things by way of application, here at Pillar Fellowship, we are a member church of IFCA International. The letters IFCA once stood for Independent Fundamental Churches of America, and I say once stood because once they tacked on the international part, the of America part just didn't quite make sense anymore, so they just say, hey, we'll just use the acronym, we are IFCA International. Fundamental churches, though, fundamentalism. We are in a theological stream that, if we're to be honest, has had struggles with legalism. That's part of the history of the theological stream in which we run. Fundamentalism as a whole, as a reputation for being a graceless, legalistic movement that adds commands to the Scriptures. It was common for churches to have church covenants that would stipulate things like members of the church are prohibited from drinking any alcohol or smoking or even things like playing cards or going to the movie theater. Women aren't allowed to wear pants, like just like a whole long list of things that were part of all the things that you could not do as a part of a fundamentalist church in fundamentalist circles. And there's, there are some fundamentalist circles that still deal with these things even today. Several years ago, the IFCA, they had a membership requirement list, and part of that membership requirement was that you agreed, as long as you are a member, an individual member of IFC International, that you would refrain from drinking any alcohol whatsoever. Several years ago, the IFCA ended up changing those membership requirements because after studying the Scriptures and being challenged on this point, they began to realize that the prohibitions against things like alcohol consumption altogether were, it was an extra-biblical rule. So now, instead, our bylaws specify sobriety in a pursuit of holiness rather than abstinence from alcohol to be in keeping with biblical teaching and what the biblical instructions are concerning things like alcohol. Why do I bring all that up? There's a reason for this. So again, our, our theological tradition does have a history of legalism. And it would be foolish for us to say that we no longer have those struggles. I mean, if we, are, <laughs> we are fundamentalists. As fundamentalists, we have a tendency to view things just in black and white. It's either true or it's false. It's either this way or it's that way. And that's just, that's just the way we view things. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. We want to stand firmly and squarely on what the Word of God has to say. And if it says X, we want to say X. If it says Z, we want to say Z. We want to stand that way. It's black and white, and that's all well and good. But the temptation for us is for us to very easily begin to slip into making applications from the text of Scripture and then raising that application to the level of Scripture itself. And that is a temptation that we need to avoid. I was reading one commentary this week, and the author of that particular commentary. He created an outline for this passage, and he framed things in this way. How to be a hypocrite. Step one, make every effort to force your rules on others. For best results, communicate how much more righteous you are than everyone else. I think the easiest way I just mentioned for this to happen is by 
is the application aspect where we, we see principles in Scripture. So I'll give an example of this. The Bible says to train up your children according to the Word of God, right? That's what we're supposed to do. And so the best way to do that is to homeschool your children. Therefore, everybody should homeschool their children. Does the Scripture say everyone should homeschool their children? It doesn't say that. It might be a good application of the principle, but if we're to elevate that application to the same level as the principle itself as to what the Scripture actually says, we're adding a man-made rule on top of the Scriptures. And then we look down our noses upon everyone else who doesn't do things the way we do them. Step two, make up lots of rules and for best results, create rules that are unrelated to what God really cares about. Jesus gave the example of honor your father and your mother and they created rules that allowed them to skirt that. So we might say make up rules that allow you to dodge things that God cares about. Step three, Make up rules, especially about external behaviors, and for best results, care as little as possible about matters of the heart. Brothers and sisters, Jesus came to save us from what's in our hearts. He came to save us from the things that really do defile us from the inside out. He came to save us from our sin, and He came to save us from legalism. And praise God for that. And if all we are ever focused on are external appearances and realities, we will never get to the heart of the gospel. Because the truth is, is I don't need more man-made rules. I need more Jesus. I need more gospel. And it's good to desire holiness. In fact, we should desire holiness. In fact, Hebrews says that without holiness, no one will see the Lord. That's kind of a big deal, right? We need holiness within our lives. We should desire holiness. We should pursue holiness. But we need to remember where that holiness comes from. It's not from stacking external rules and man-made tradition upon the Scriptures and, and enforcing that upon others. Holiness comes through the righteousness of Jesus Christ that's credited to our account when we come to faith in Christ. And then Jesus progressively conforms us to His own image through the power of the Holy Spirit as He teaches us from His Word and not by stacking and adding additional man-made rules onto the text. So may we be a holy people. May we be a people that does pursue holiness and pursues conformity to Christ. But in keeping with what the Word of God actually says, and not by adding man-made rules on top, or by seeking out legal loopholes to get around what God has clearly revealed. So may God work that holiness within us, but may that holiness include freedom from legalism. Father, thank you so much for this text. Lord, in many ways, this text is a, a difficult and a challenging text for us because it's so hard for us to see where we are legalistic within our own lives, and often it is only through hindsight and looking back that we can see it. 
I pray, Lord, that if there are areas where we have been legalistic within our lives, that you would open our eyes to that. May we see clearly, may we see truly, and may we forsake and repent of legalism, man-made rules, and may we seek to live faithfully to what your word says. Lord, may we not fall into ditches on the other side of the road either where we, we say any commands are legalism when you have given us commands. May we be faithful to not go beyond what was written and follow what your word says. Thank you and praise you and it's in Christ's name we pray, amen.